Hi, and welcome to a new Dishcast, um, this time with drumroll Charles Murray, a, a legend, really, in Washington and in public policy questions. We've known each other now for more than a quarter of a century, uh, and I've always had the rather naive belief that what Charles writes is really fascinating, has been incredibly insightful about what's happened in America and the West the last 30 or 40 years that I've been alive and have entertained and enjoyed his work. This is a, obviously a minority position, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but it also helps that I know the man and have known him for quite a long time. And as a real kid uh, in the day when I was editing The New Republic at the absurdly young age of whenever I was, that we entered a, a firestorm together and we've been going through it ever since. Obviously, I at a much lower degree of difficulty than Charles. Um, how does it feel, Charles, after all these years, to be still this focus of such energy and such intensity when, in fact, we're going to talk about your book, Human Diversity. It's, in fact, an incredibly dense academic text yeah. that requires a certain amount of patience in even trying to understand it. How does it, how does it feel after all these years, Charles? Well, I got used to it a long time ago. I'm still a little startled by it because the intensity is out there, the, the sheer hatred uh, that's out there. But it's, you know, I, I live in isolation. I, the quarantine under COVID and my normal life for the last 30 years were virtually indistinguishable. Uh, and so I just don't, see that much of it directly. And you have a wonderful partner. Um, I have the my soulmate. Uh, can't ask for more than that. And that's, I'm, I know her well, and she's, um, it is it is kind of essential, isn't it, um, to have someone like that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've always told, you know, at, at 78, I love to give advice to kids. And I say, there's only two things you need to do. Find your soulmate and find something you love to do. And everything else is rounding error. And I have been very lucky on both counts. Yes. Um, I do think it's the key to staying sane right now. I've just been observing on Twitter this this lovely piece that a woman called Elizabeth Brunig wrote about how happy she was to be a young mother. And the a simple explanation of her own joy of motherhood and how much it was difficult, but how more rewarding it was. And just a simple piece and the sheer level of hatred directed at this person, the bile, is beyond anything I can fully understand or interpret. And I have to say, it feels that way towards you as well. I know that, and you don't deny this, that many of the things that you have written and argued are highly controversial and should be dis discussed ferociously and debated aggressively, but the personal abuse, the imputation of motives of darkness in your soul, yeah. uh, you said you've gotten used to it, but no one gets used to that, really. No human being, or at least not, at the, not only at the price of their own humanity. I Tell had, me how to do it. Because it's it's I, easy. I, okay. It's, you just, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. But if I get an abusive uh, uh, twi Twitter, a tweet directed at me, I just simply mute the person. Right. I never block them. 
I don't want them to have the satisfaction of knowing that they're blocked. I just want them to blather on into the Twitter sphere while I am oblivious to it. And and I I have a circle of friends that have been very loyal. And so I don't really I'm not in the public square the same way you are. I come out with a book once every three or four years. Uh, you're you're in the center stage. <laughs> or on the firing line uh, every week or every day in, in some ways. So it's a completely different experience for me. I get very little direct contact with it unless I do things like go to Middlebury. And you've also managed to somehow keep your eye on the deeper research. You, you're, you're, clearly this last book that you did, Human Diversity, which uh, I want to talk about today, which struck me as an incredibly challenging book, difficult book to absorb and to understand. Um, either ignored uh, by m almost every yeah. single major newspaper, magazine, uh, or viciously attacked en passant, as it were. What's the key to having friends in Washington, by the way? I mean, do you have a, you have a poker club? Is that, is that what, is that, am I wrong about that? <laughs> no, I, I, it's not a Washington uh, poker club. I would go to the Charlestown, West Virginia casino <clears throat> which uh, at least I did when it was open before the COVID hit. And they have a poker room there. And I played there two or three times a week for maybe eight or nine years before COVID hit. And so it's a lot of the same people are there all the time. And I have a group of people out there <clears throat> who they do know, you know who I am in the sense of, of my persona as an AEI scholar and the stuff I've written. But they are completely unimpressed by it, and they don't treat me uh, that way. In fact, anecdote, since I mentioned Middlebury, that I love about uh, is that my friends in Washington were very solicitous of me after we had the mob scene at Middlebury and, uh, you know, attacked as we went to the car. You poor baby, that kind of reaction. And I go back to the poker room. And they just gave me so much shit about it. <laughs> and they, they did it in the way that guys do. That's the way that they communicate affection in a lot of time. And I love that. I love having those different worlds. Abuse is affection in many <laughs> yes. male relationships and friendships. I learned this very early and very young in an all-boys high school. Um, and I have to say I kind of like it. It's very English, too, of course. Um, the lack of sentimentality. But in fact, in some ways, giving you shit every day is, is a lovely form of love. Really. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, uh, the two remarks were made at the poker table as I walked up to it. And I said something about being glad to be here. And one of them looked at me and said, you ought to be glad to be anywhere. And, and I sat down and another guy said, you know, I bet that's the only lecture you've ever given where people didn't fall asleep. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of stuff. But, and who are these people? They're just people you know? They're regular poker? They're they... poker players. So we've gotten to know each other, you know, over many sessions because poker, um, you're trying to take the other guy's money and uh, you need to play for stakes that are in some sense meaningful. But there's a lot of camaraderie at, at a lot of poker tables. And they are not part of your professional milieu? Not at all. I don't have – oh, there's uh, one advisor to President Bush who was also a poker player, and he would go out there too. But that's the only person that I knew outside uh, uh, in my Washington world that transfers over into the poker world. It's funny because uh, one of the things that – I must say I'm, I'm grateful for, for being gay, is that 
I have a whole range of friendships and relationships with people that have absolutely nothing to do with what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, now, we sometimes talk about it, and we will talk about it. But they're purely social, fun, hang out, smoke pot, talk. Yeah. Uh, relationships with regular people, not all of whom have gone to college, you know, everybody. Uh, and... And I find that incredibly helpful. I bounce ideas off people, just to, people who haven't already been kind of in, in, in marinated in politics and Washington uh, uh, factionalism. Uh, and I learn a huge amount from those interactions. And also they're just simply a refuge so that uh, Catherine and I, Catherine's my wife, and she was my co-author on this book we wrote about the Apollo program. And uh, we keep in touch with a lot of those people. And so we can go into this completely different world. Harder to now because, unfortunately, a lot of them are passing on. But uh, this other world where people don't care about all this stuff that is at the center of our life in Washington. I think that's incredibly important. And it also reflects the themes that you've been writing about, which is that the way that our society has become increasingly stratified, the harder it is for people who end up, uh, I think, through both you and me, becoming parts of elites, even though we didn't come from them in particular. Uh, and yet we only really, people only socialize with their own peers in these increasingly rarefied bubbles, which is why we keep misunderstanding the country or missing it or condescending to it or, or having an effect on it that really is counterproductive or not what we intend. You know, that triggers something that maybe we can come back and talk about later. But, you know, the dominant thought I've had in the, for the, over the last eight, ten years is that the real dividing line in this country isn't political. It isn't racial. It's the difference in day-to-day -day life in the great metropolitan areas and in the rest of America. Because, you know, I live in a town of 150 people, so, okay, that's way out there at the end of the spectrum, but we're, we're near a town of 75,000. And the fact is, in small city and small town America, daily life is completely different from daily life in DuPont Circle. And the same goes for the other great cities. And one of the things about these different circles we've just been talking about is it cuts across that divide as well. Yes. And that's what's happening politically all over the world, yeah. all over the Western world, in yeah. which these, these simple worlds we live in are becoming unrecognizable one to the other. And therefore, the whole concept of a, a sort of unified common good or a single national community is increasingly under, under threat. And it strikes me that one of the things that the bell curve did, and I, I mentioned that because when I read the book first, which I did, of course, in manuscript form, almost all of it was about class yeah. in this way. Almost all of it was about how the how the filtering of smart people from small towns and villages that happened really increasingly with, uh, after the GI Bill, with mass education, that you were beginning to, to sift the society in ways that separated its cognitive elites from the rest of the country, and that that would, you predicted, have all sorts of consequences, especially when you add on the effect that once you sift all these people out of the heartland, you put them into these big cities, 
where they stay, essentially, marry each other, you also have, over time, when you wash this through the cycle several times, increasing actual genetic differences between the kind of levels of intelligence that you find in these big cities and those that you find elsewhere. Uh, and that has got to lead to a, a gradual uh, dissociation, one from the other. I, I think that the, the draining, of, it's not so much a draining of intelligence from the small cities and so forth. I know plenty of really smart people in, in Frederick, Maryland, which is a city near us. But what's happened is this hyper-rarefied uh, uniformity of, of high intelligence in Silicon Valley, in the Upper East Side of New York, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and so forth, where uh, not everybody is a genius, but but the mean is really high. And once you get a bunch of people together who have that kind of cognitive ability, they tend to develop folkways which do separate them from everybody else. Uh, and those places, well, I think the intellectual dialogue going on right now is driven by those people. Uh, and one of the things that I would like most to do is to somehow, let's take a specific example. Colorblindness is now a racist notion. Mm -hmm. The melting pot is now a racist notion. I would love to get an honest Gallup poll above cross-section of Americans who think if colorblindness is still a good ideal. My guess is 85%, 90% think that this is still the ideal. You are not going to get that information from Washington Post, the New York Times, from MSNBC, or I'll just go down the whole list of letters. Yeah. And other things that just struck me as someone I've, I've never really lost because they were kind of part of my upbringing um, is that, of course, I'm proud of my country. Yes. And... and <laughs> And I'd want to put it before other countries. I think the government should be dedicated primarily to its own citizens. I think that a shared history and community and traditions and language brings a nation together. Uh, I have no problem with a nation state. Uh, I kind of, I'm both English, obviously in origin, and I have incredibly fond feelings about my native land. But I'm also a rather uh, overly, in some ways, naive patriot of America. And I think a lot of us first-generation immigrants are. Um, and I love those parts of America that, that most remind me of where I grew up. Small towns, regular people. Uh, now, I wasn't part of that. I, well, I was part of that, but I was also different from it because of my brain, which was not something I also know I did much to deserve. Um, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, my parents were shocked, actually, when I took an IQ test when I was 10 years old and suddenly was revealed to be this smart kid that my elementary school headmaster was like shocked by this and had to bring them in. I was terrified I'd done something wrong, but they said I was just like outside of this normal range and, and they didn't know quite what to do with me, but I probably needed to go to a gifted or talented place. Uh, uh, which ideally did. Um, and that separated me in a way, but I don't know why people who are separated that way then turn on the, where they're from. Why do we feel the need to disparage it or to think of it as a, 
a backwater, whereas in fact the lives that people live there are as real and as valid and as meaningful as anything that those of us with big brains will ever uh, understand. Now, is that true? Um, if you think about the collection of people you know who came also from small towns, uh, from middle class or working class families, and I put this as a question, it's not rhetorical, mm. I still feel extremely sentimental about Newton, Iowa, and uh, a great deal of probably my intellectual perspective is conditioned by the fact that my dad never went to college, even though he was plenty smart enough to go to college, and uh, but he never had that opportunity. And so you're like, you and I are alike in that respect, and I know some others who are too, I guess there are a bunch out there who don't, who look back on and are embarrassed about where they came from. But I don't have, I don't know very many like that. But uh, I think that's partly because we tend to be attracted to self, people with the yeah, same outlook. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the old self-selection phenomenon. Although again. the gay thing also does help you come in contact with lots of people who escaped where they were from and really do have horrifying and rather bad experiences of it. So that gives me this also an example that no, small towns can also be horribly oppressive and nasty places. Um, you know, they can be full of backbiting, of old grudges, of, of resentments. They can stew in their own parochialism Did, as didn't well. Didn't you have any of that in, in your own experience growing up? I was too young, I think, um, to really absorb that um, in my, at my own small town. And I go back now, I'm, I'm saddened in a way because although it's still there and it looks the same, there's something, the life has gone out of it a bit. It feels It feels as if the old habits have, have begun to die off, that as a, as a place with meaning, it, it doesn't quite cohere the same way. I, the, 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 the reflection I have is I used to, as a kid, be told by my mom to go, get, go, go to the butchers and the bakers with two stores. It took about five minutes walk as a kid. And I'd go with a list. I'd hand it to the butcher, the, the baker. They were two separate businesses. They'd been there for a long time. They're both family owned. They knew my mom. They knew me. Now, both of those are gone. They're, they're basically now fronts for real, real estate companies. There's a massive supermarket next to the railway station where everybody goes. Um, it's, it doesn't have quite the cultural uh, coherence that it, it seemed to have had. My churches are where I went to are basically half empty. I went into one where I used to go to where the windows are smashed open, the air can come in, that there's something something that's 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 died somewhere in there. And I think that's also true of a lot of places in, in America where yeah. the meaning seems to have gone, the, the pride in where you're from. Um, I mean, it, I'm not saying it's disappeared entirely, but I don't, I'm not surprised, for example, at the amount of drug use now among people in those places that feel as if they've been left behind. Yeah, uh, and and uh, that is a problem that I think has been fueled to a large extent, <laughs> moving very far away from, from the topics that uh, we were going to talk about, but I, I personally think it was essentially a lot of the meaning for life for a working class male goes away uh, if he can't say, if it weren't for me, my wife and kids wouldn't have a roof over their head. If it weren't for me, I may be working at a menial job, but I've got dignity as a man because I'm a father. And Well, when you have 
some huge proportion of adult males in their 30s and 40s who've never been married, um, they don't have any of that kind of thing. And so... Let alone all the men who are owned by their the wives. Um, yeah. And all those who increasingly are not a part of the labor force where their wives are. Which brings me actually to your book, which <laughs> talks about men and women in a way that treats them as slightly different creatures. Obviously not completely different, but... Uh, but different enough. And you believe that the studies that we have on how men and women are psychologically um, overwhelmingly show that there are differences that are universal, that are resilient, that will, that will not ever disappear entirely. At the same time, and this I think is what people miss, is that you also believe and have argued that the gains for women in breaking down some of the repressive barriers against women's ability to do whatever they want have been real yeah. and a good thing. And a good thing. The, the removing impediments from people's success to do whatever they want to do is essential. But along with that, you have to have some realism about how massively society is going to change given you call it human diversity. You could also call it just human nature, yeah. right? Yeah, it's it's so many things that have happened in the last half century have two things true at the same time. They have some aspects of them that are really good, and they have inescapable side effects that are really bad. And that's the case uh, with with women having opportunities to pursue careers that they couldn't before. I have an older sister. It's okay if we talk about personal stories, Absolutely. obviously. I have an older sister who went off to Iowa State in the late 1950s and wanted to become an architect. And so she, as an 18-year-old young woman, is sitting in a freshman uh, engineering course because she needs the engineering to become an architect. And the professor from the podium says that he doesn't think that women have any business being in engineering. That's a pretty awful thing to do to an 18-year-old young woman. By the way, she went ahead and, and uh, she didn't become an architect, but she continued in a technical career. And but but that kind of thing was real. It was powerful. It was cultural, and uh, I'm really glad that that has largely gone away. But at the same time that that has happened, you have persisting different. I call them cognitive repertoires in the book. Uh, it embraces much more than IQ. It's all the different ways in which we think and behave. And in which men and women have overlapping but different distributions. Andrew, if I had to say of one concept that's really simple that people cannot get through their heads, it's the concept of different means but overlapping distributions. I know. <laughs> and, and it's so, not like you didn't actually name a book, yeah. an actual whole book after this, this statistical. I know. Uh, but it is very hard. It's intuitively very hard to – it, it, it requires holding two things in your head at the same time, which is that there can be differences in outcomes and in behaviors among groups, but you cannot, you can't, there is no distinct, complete space between the groups. There's massive overlap. And equally, you can't, from that understanding, ever assume anything about an individual human being because of their belonging in a certain group. Yeah, they course. could be the exception, they could be the rule, they could be anywhere in between. You have to get to know them a little bit before you can know. But 
the basic thing that was first hypothesized in 1904, I think it was, is that some I can't even remember offhand who who said it that men are interested in things more interested in things and women are more interested in people and that has held up really well the most fat there are all sorts of things that uh, that that feed into the empirical story for this but my very favorite is this thing called the uh, study of mathematically precocious youth STMM it was came out of uh, uh, Johns Hopkins, and it gives the SAT to 13-year-olds, the regular SAT, and if you can get a good score in the SAT as a 13-year-old, you're really smart, and, and basically they identify these very high IQ kids, and they've been following them now for 35 years. And the reason I love the, this database is that you have uh, women there now, mature women, they're in their 40s now, who have extremely high uh, visual, spatial, slash mathematics IQs, way up to the top of the distribution. And then you have also guys who are at the top of that distribution. These people are not being held back because of a sex difference in in distributions of IQ. They're all Which, capable. by the way, it's important to note, there is no such thing we can tell between men and women, that IQ does not differ at to anything but a small degree between men and women, right? Well, there's, that's true, the mean. Right. The mean does not. Uh, by the way, there are certain people who argue with me about that, but I think they're wrong, and I think I think the balance of the information. It's but a, the tail is longer on that, that, But, yeah, there are more men at both ends of the bell curve, more really dull ones and more really smart ones, especially in STEM-related things, in visual, spatial, and mathematical ability. Uh, males have more, a lot more at the high end. But if you're talking about men and women who both belong in that tail, you have the very same distributions of uh, interest in STEM versus interest in psychology versus interest in English literature and so forth. And those who do, women who do go into STEM, who could be particle physicists if they felt like it, uh, generally go into bi biological fields, many of which are intellectually incredibly difficult, genetics being one of them, but they are more interested in the sciences that involve living things. So you see that pattern. Oh, and by the way... So you, you're not surprised that coding, for example, this isolated, lonely, playing with numbers tends to be something that very high-end IQ males will prefer rather than high IQ females. Because it's not only playing with numbers, it's also playing with spatial dimensions. Uh, if you are a really good programmer, you are thinking in multiple dimensions when you're creating your program because you have, you have loops in the program and this that goes out to that part. And, and another personal story, I went to MIT for graduate school and I love to program. And... Uh, took me a while to come to grips with the fact that relative to other MIT students, I just wasn't very good at it. So I went with my strengths. But one of the things I learned there was that I could look at little programs that had been created, and I know what the program did, and I still couldn't figure out how it did it mm. because I wasn't able to think in three dimensions, four dimensions, five dimensions, the way that the others were. Anyway, guys have an advantage in that. Women have uh, a variety of other kinds of not only cognitive advantages, but also uh, so, social behavior advantages, uh, a lot of which have to do, you know, feminine intuition and so forth. 
Are we, well, allowed to, are we allowed to talk about that anymore? The nice thing about us, Andrew, is <laughs> we, can. we can talk about anything <laughs> we want to. Because what are they going to say about us? You yes, know? I know, but I, you see, the thing is I grew up just as a, a sort of, in a way, a kind of naive person. But I observed these things in real life. Like yeah. most people who haven't done, written, read all these countless psychological, sociological studies that you cite here that show this, just assume that men and women are different. Now, there may be there are lots of exceptions to that. I, I'm not, I wasn't that, I was very good at the female thing. I was very good at, at literature. I was good at language. I was good at imaginative things. I was, uh, I was good verbally. I wasn't as good mathematically. Um, and in some ways, I felt a little insecure about that, um, to be honest with you. But but I was still a man, and uh, and that's fine. And I also could acknowledge women that were better at me in those yeah. things. Well, I'm like you pretty much in my profile. But I'll tell you one thing that I found interesting. There's a little test called reading the mind and the eyes test, and you can find it online. And and it consists of looking at just a, a truncated picture of a face that only shows the eyes and the eyebrows and so forth. And you're supposed to multiple choice what – does this represent? Is it uh, fear? Is it anger? Is it? Mm. And I took the test and I tried hard. Okay, I did not do it lightly. My uh, my score was exactly at the male average, which is lower than the than the female average. And the, the translation of that is women are better men in picking up subtle cues like that. Now here's here's the million dollar question: mm -hmm. Why? Uh, ah. Now, now, it seems to me quite obvious, having watched a lot of planet Earth, for example, that when I look at various species, now obviously humans are very different because we have these massive brains that complicate everything. And so I'm not, no one should deny that. But I don't look at a, a documentary by David Attenborough and him talking about, now observe the patriarchy at work here in the, the climate of these birds. The male is exercising patriarchal power by going out and getting the food. The female is staying at home because she's oppressed. We obviously don't believe that. But when it comes to humans, we suddenly decide we are not just uh, different than animals, we are entirely yeah. different. And, and I just, I just never been able to put my, wrap my head around it. You know, I, I deliberately and explicitly say in the book, I'm not going to talk about evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm not is I know what happens if I do. This is at the point where I actually thought people would read the book and review it. I thought if I do that, they're going to say, oh, Murray is talking about these just-so stories. Tell me what you mean by just-so stories because it's an important element of the, the book, Human Diversity, that you – you worry about that that's a weakness, a, a, a severe weakness in your in your position. Well, it's the reason I don't talk about evolutionary biology because it's too easy to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. A just-so story goes like this, that uh, I'm trying to explain why it is that, that women seem to be devoted to care for small children more than men, and I give you an explanation for evolutionary biology, and people say that's a just-so story. You have a conclusion, and now you've worked your way back to an explanation for it. But as long as I mentioned that one, look, evolution works by passing on genes, and uh, it's all about, you know, fitness in the sense of evolutionary fitness. What happens to the babies of women who don't like to nurture small, squalling objects, they die. And guess what? They leave the gene pool. 
uh, the, the, the women who passed on their genes over millions of years of evolution were those who were most likely to raise babies to an age at which they could reproduce. Guys can ignore the babies from the get-go and still have a good chance of passing on their genes because they can impregnate a whole bunch of uh, females. Uh, women have much fewer chances to pass on their genes. It seems to me that to call something like that a just-so story is exactly wrong. It is a compellingly convincing story. Well, I always bring up being a gay person when I when I think of gays and lesbians, because here you have a really rather interesting subgroup where one culture is entirely male, another culture is entirely female. And so you think, well, what's going to happen in that context? Well, it turns out the men turned out to be turned out to be highly promiscuous, like fucking everything in sight. And uh, there, there are no epidemics of lesbian STDs at all. Uh, so here you have two groups that are really kind of self-selected to defy uh, these stereotypes, and yet they happen to reflect them in an almost comic degree. Yes. Uh, it also helps imply why the whole notion of a lesbian and gay community is such a strange thing, because in fact, uh, lesbians and gays have almost nothing in common apart from a shared hostility from the outside world, which has led to great friendship and great solidarity in some communities, but there is in, just an intensely difficult project to completely fuse an entirely male subculture with an entirely female subculture. And yet people think about the issue of homosexuality as if it, as if it subverts gender norms. It doesn't. It's, it's it a... seems to absolutely prove them at some level, even in a context culturally where you're supposed to be as liberal and as lefty as conceivable. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and one of the, a lot of what go, went into human diversity was my pure fascination at the progress that has been made and understand the physi physiological uh, mechanisms behind that, uh, whether it's circulating hormones or whether it's the impact of hormones on the structure of the brain prenatally or whether it's a variety of the other differences in brain structure. There has been a huge progress made in understanding how these sex differences work with many of the principal investigators in these technical articles being women. And it's, it's pretty much like the other side of the moon so that – well, I'll give you an example. I have appendixes that ordinarily should have gotten me shot by certain political circles. I have one uh, appendix on uh, difference in, in brain volumes and so forth between men and women. Calipers. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, yeah. I think yeah, about five times old, a day I'm told that I wield calipers yeah. on, uh, or phrenology. How do you – how do you counter that? Because it's just, it's a hoary old thing. They, they call out and say, well, you're talking about nature. What are you, are you measuring people's skulls? Are you measuring the size of their noses? Um, Here, here's or, or where. What kind of depraved uh, charlatan are you? Here's, here's, the, here's an example of the change that has happened over the course of my career. So if you want to go, going from sex differences to race differences, just to make sure we don't neglect anybody. No, we're, we're coming. We're, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> but just to just to mention that, when we did the bell curve, uh, we we discussed the literature uh, briefly about differences, race differences, and brain size. And at that time, you had to use measures like head circumference uh, and other very indirect measures, and in, uh, because you couldn't get to a living brain, and so it was all very inferential. 
a lot of it was done very seriously and very carefully, but it was very inferential. Now, these days, you do in vivo MRIs, you know the uh, cubic centimeters of different lobes of the brain down to a fraction of a centimeter. And it's not a question of calipers anymore. It's a question of a highly precise uh, measurements combined with much more detailed understanding of what different parts of the brain do and how they interact. And so at the same time, you are being having someone say, Oh, you're, you know, you hang out with guys like Murray and they're still phrenologists and stuff like that. The reality of what the scientific disciplines have accomplished isn't scary. It's not coming up with stuff that's validating all sorts of evil stereotypes. It's just really interesting. Yes, but it's also to some extent because it suggests that there's something out there called nature, as it were. Let's call that very broadly yeah. speaking that we're mammals, that we have bodies, that we have brains, that we are subject to natural biological forces, this puts a limit of some kind to humanity's ability to transform itself and also puts a limit of some kind on our capacity to change the world for the better. And that's where this comes and That's why some people I respect say about you that uh, forget about it. It's just about his politics. And from the politics, which is a small state, libertarian, uh, you, you, you deduce that's what it's really about. And all this stuff is really a kind of smokescreen to promote this, this thing. What would you, how, do you, how do you respond to, to that criticism? Well, the first thing is, uh, so I'm a libertarian who wants to have a universal basic income. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that, that seems a little bit inconsistent mm -hmm. with uh, the accusation. The larger one is, I think you're. I think essentially you're correct about the foundational source of the difference. If you accept human nature constraining human behavior and human responses, you are also thereby saying there's a real limit to how plastic human beings are. And if there's a real limit to how plastic human beings are, you can't take the infant and provide it with the best possible prenatal care and the best possible nutrition and the best possible pre-K. And lo and behold, we will produce these huge changes in the proportion of kids of different races uh, or of different, so, uh, different economic classes, for that matter, who reach kindergarten at an equal mental level. It won't happen. And the reason it won't happen is because of constraints imposed by biology. Now... Having said that, then, there is no straight-line extrapolation of that to any particular social policy. You can either go in one direction, which is the most obvious direction, which is to say if people actually have very little control over how well they do in life, you're, you're pushed toward a Rawlsian uh, position whereby society should be arranged so that uh, any inequalities exist only because they work to the benefit of the least advantaged. And uh, that's, that's a very serious philosophical argument. Dick Hernstein and I alluded to that near the end of the bell curve, saying the natural implication of all this is a Rawlsian state, and we're going to have to write a chapter where we explain why we think that's not the best answer. But what we came up with was not starting out with natural rights and therefore we'll work from there to a, a no, you know, Robert Nozick uh, minimal state. 
Rather, we said what you want is a society that is not so much equal in outcomes as one where people with a wide range of abilities can find a valued place. And how is it that that communities and nations generate genuinely valued places where somebody can say to himself, if I weren't here, I would be missed uh, in this community. And we said that's a very different kind of a society than a Rawlsian society where you're trying to minimize uh, uh, inequality. Yeah, but let me come back to my my Mm -hmm. old hometown. You know, the difference between the baker who had a reason to exist, Mm -hmm. had developed a skill actually over the years, and now you're a Walmart. Instead, he's a Walmart greeter. Uh He can be replaced overnight. These roles do not exist anymore. And that is a core reason for the psychological uh, despair and anomie and ennui everywhere. I don't know why we always go into French talking about these terribly <laughs> moody things, but this sense that each individual, regardless of their intellectual capacity, can nonetheless contribute enormously in different ways to our society has sort of become uh, – it's almost as if one is condescending to people to say but that. Let's not say society. Let's say community okay. to the people around them. Right. And But – uh, look, you aren't being sufficiently pessimistic. Uh, let me let me draw a much more much darker picture for you while mm-hmm. I chuckle in the background. Uh, I'm sort of validating all of the uh, caricatures of me. Um, right now, in the small town in the area I live in, you have lots of people, and I'll say guys because most of them are men who are accomplished uh, uh, plumbers and electricians and other kinds of craftsmen. And uh, they do their jobs well. They uh, seem to enjoy their jobs because you see more of them. You see the same guys if you live in a small town than if you live in Washington, D.C. And by the way, they are not going to be automated out of existence anytime soon. The people who are going to be automated out of existence are not primarily skilled uh, blue-collar workers. It's going to be this vast middle group of sort of middle-level white-collar employees who have been worth salaries that you know put them in the 80 90 $100,000 range because they do have to have the cognitive ability to make a certain limited set of choices in their jobs. And that's where AI, artificial intelligence, that's where AI is going to have a huge effect on the job market. If you think we've seen problems because unskilled labor has gotten displaced, Uh, What do you think it's going to be like when you're talking about the heart of the middle class who are have guys who can no longer find the jobs they could find 15 years ago because there's a software program that does it for them? When when by the way, I, I work at the American Enterprise Institute where we have some very competent economists. And every single one of them says I'm wrong about this. You should you should all know this, that that my this dire prediction is not shared by them. I think it's. I think it's a done deal, and that will happen, and that's going to produce a huge crisis. Well, what happens when AI is smarter than even the smartest of us? I mean, that could could it could it also render super smart people irrelevant? Well, I'll tell you the kind of super smart people that just uh, you and me. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. There will always be a place for the super smart guy who can. Uh, or gal, super, super smart person who can do things in STEM that enable us to push back the frontiers of, uh, of what is possible. The, what you and I do, our value added to society is uh, 
it's kind of hard to uh, to measure, and it's uh, and it's kind of hard to think that we are indispensable in any serious way. And so I think an awful lot of people going to Yale Law School and to getting PhDs in English and otherwise occupying places in the society that right now are very good places to be. At some point, people are going to wake up and say, actually, we don't need these people. Uh, but I'm 78, so I don't think it'll happen before I'm gone. You may have a problem, but... Uh, oh, I hope to be retired <laughs> by then. I've saved enough money to be able to survive. But but, but uh, how? I mean, when I think of the sense that people feel that they're no longer needed by society, by their own community or by society in general. Um, what do you fall back on in those circumstances? Because this has happened over history. Human beings in the Industrial Revolution, for example, were their jobs were rendered completely meaningless. So this is a process of capitalism churning through our systems and our ways of life. If if these become sort of totalizing in a way, uh, what resources do human beings have to fall back on to make their lives meaningful if it's not these economic rewards, social status, and all the other things? Because Here, we've lost religion, right? We've lost uh, those simple things that we thought were relics of the past, but which actually when I see them in existence, and the longer I live, the more I see this, how crucial those rituals, those 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 traditions, those sense of the eternal, the the things that enabled you to get married, to have children, to be buried in this human cycle of life that creates some sort of meaning, that is uh, that's we're losing that. Okay, now this poses a very interesting challenge for males. And the reason I say that is, so, gee, what do you do if you, aren't, if you aren't, don't have a fulfilling job that you get good pay and status for that nonetheless give meaning to your lives? Well, one half of the human population has figured out an answer to that question for, for millennia. And so... Uh, which my, is... Which is all the things that women do in households and families. And it's partly, of course, raising children, but another personal example is my wife, Catherine. Catherine has not held a full-time job since uh, she uh, married me. Uh, it's not because I forbade her to do it. Uh, she decided she wanted to go in different directions. The point is this. She has led a very rich, fulfilling life. She's been very active in our local Quaker meeting. She's been very active in the Frederick Literacy Council, the, the Burkittsville Town Council. I could go on and list another dozen organizations in which she has led a fulfilling life in combination with family and husband and the rest. Now, even as jobs are automated out of existence, there are going to be all sorts of human needs in communities and that still need to be met and that bureaucracies do a really bad job of meeting and that local voluntary organizations can. How do we get males to take a look at females who've lived satisfying lives, contributing to those human resources, and saying to the guys, you know what? If they can do it, so can you. Except your own book will argue men will have a harder time doing it because it's just not as good. 
at negotiating human relationships. And, that and they're not as interested in this stuff. <laughs> no, we're more selfish, more interested in abstractions. Uh, we tend to want to play video games rather than than help our, our peers or to organize local groups. Or I think of my sister who does have a job. I mean, she brought up her kids and now she's she cuts hair, which is a which is something that will never except in a pandemic will never will never stop being useful. But to say she cuts hair doesn't even capture a sliver of what she really does. Yeah, exactly. She is an absolute node of communication, community, association in her community. People love her. She has networks of friends, people she's helped. There's questions of the church. There's a question of taking care of the homeless. There are things that I am in, and she's probably going to hear this, but I am in awe of her, in awe of what she can do, and also how she copes with my parents, with my brother, everybody's personal. The poor woman is is beset by this, and in some ways, it's not fair that she bears such a burden. But she is so good at it, and she takes such satisfaction. I assume in it. I think she does. Time it definitely buoys her in okay. her life because she would be missed. God, would she be missed? I would not particular. Maybe a few readers would think, "Oh, I wish we could have the dish," but most people could give a damn if I disappeared yep. tomorrow. And uh, and I felt this way about my grandmother too. I'm now talking about my family, but here was a woman no education really at all. She was the seventh of thirteen kids from a small town in from Tralee in Ireland. She was a cleaning lady, but I tell you, I've never met a happier person in my life. I've never seen someone more content with her place in the world. Her religiosity was intense. Her demeanor was constantly happy-go-lucky. I used to watch her as this precocious kid who's smarter than anybody I was told, working for her. And all I could look at her was, 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 almost, was intense admiration. Okay, we have, we have come full circle. So when people say to you, oh, you know, somebody like Murray... Uh, wants a certain kind of political system, and therefore he talks himself into it. what we have been saying uh, into uh, th this position about the constraints of human nature. What we have been talking to each other about now for 10, 15 minutes is what do we really need? We really need a society in which we have lots of kinds of, of community nodes in which people can find fulfilling roles. And that's what's going to get us out of this. And uh, here's what I worry about with IQ as, as a measure, because it's, it's, it's a measure that appeals particularly to the intelligent because it places us yeah. at the top of the, and therefore adds a kind of valence to it. And I think that, 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 that I think what people misunderstand, let me put it that way, about where you and I are coming from in this, is that there is no moral uh, quality attached to this whatsoever, nor is there any human. It's in some ways, uh, this, this levels of intelligence are not, don't particularly help you have, especially at the very high ends, a very happy life or a meaningful life. Yeah. They can be horribly oppressive ways of living. And, and respect for those with the least, as it say, monetizable or tangible, measurable qualities is is essential to our worldview. I mean, I, I, I and that's also why you don't. It's why you're not such a big proponent of universal, constant education. Is because you don't think everybody benefits from that, and not everybody's designed for that. And it's not because they're inferior. It's because we are miss. It's a category error. We are mis misunderstanding what people bring yeah. to the cut. Now, let me. This is going to get me into trouble. But let me let me let me say this about race in America because we're going to move on to that. I have. 
I'm an English person. I'm an immigrant here. I grew up without any racial baggage, really, because I never, there were no races. There was just one, I met one, Af well, I can't say African-American, black kid in my small town. And I was fascinated and we had good time together. And I remember things like touching his hair the way that kid did Barack, because I was just curious. Um, but when I came to America, what most struck me about America, one of the things that most struck me in it was just how astonishingly richer America was and is because of the contribution of African-Americans to this place in everything. And the extraordinary spiritual inheritance that has informed us, the, 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 the strength in so many activities, whether it be the arts, music, literature, um, uh, these, and even in the lives and manners of white people, they don't realize how black they are in America. <laughs> that this is this has been an incredible fusion of this culture, and that's what's so fucking great about this country. Is well. this, and and yet, I am told because I'm like interested in these marginal differences that that might explain some things, as if I'm as if I'm denigrating that. Whereas in fact, I revere it. And uh, and I will say revere so much about African-American culture that I think many of us in the West miss, have not seen, not grasped, and that I, that I treasure. And so to be called a racist, I don't know, it just, it really does wound me. Um, because, <sighs> I don't get emotional here, but I, I it's, it's, it's incredibly hard to be told that you hate a group of people when nothing could be further Andrew, from the, the truth. The word has lost any meaning. You know, people are being called racist uh, for such incredibly silly reasons now that it should lose its sting. And I'm not just a racist. I'm a white supremacist. Uh, it just yeah. struck me as completely bonkers. You know, it, it's, it's interesting if, with hindsight— Go back to th about the time that Barack Obama was elected, the early 2000s, let's say. And let, uh, let's see now, Oprah is probably the most, I think in the polls, she's the most admired woman in America. Not the most admired black woman, the most admired woman in America. Uh, you have in the news media, you have uh, black news anchors and, and uh, esteemed correspondents and columnists. Uh, I could just go down a list of black professor professoriate, included some real luminaries. And in all sorts of ways, and also if you went out and asked blacks and whites, as Gallup did, uh, are race relations between blacks and whites, you know, very good, somewhat good. On both sides, it was around 70% saying they were good or very good. And in a way, that, I think, was emblematic in retrospect of a high watermark, that there were, there were problems of, yeah, there were still lots of problems, but I think there was a much greater sense of, of the, the contributions of blacks to American culture becoming something we took for granted. Uh, and, and that, and then we elect a black president 
And I don't know about you, but I didn't vote for Barack Obama. Uh, well, I, I mean, just I, I did, but I would have support, I supported him <laughs> both times rather enthusiastically, as you recall. I was yeah. basically cancelled by the right for, for 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 thinking he was an extraordinary figure, and and I okay. still feel so, that so way. So we, we we had different, but I was I was happy in one sense that he was president. Yeah. I I sort of said this this is going to make it that much easier. To put the whole race thing behind us. Yeah, but let me let me put this to you though: the the, the backlash to him was beyond any intensity that I could understand rationally. I don't think he was a radical president. I don't think you could really sustain that argument. And increasingly, the left doesn't believe that either. Um, mm-hmm. They were deluded at the time. I thought I thought of him at the time as a really rather moderate, slightly conservative, certainly temperamentally very conservative person wanted to keep the country together, was an establishmentarian in some ways, uh, eloquent, passionate. He actually had a really powerful argument for America's history as a gradual enfolding of various different groups into a constantly evolving project of moral improvement, which I found appealing, if, if, if a little naive, but nonetheless inspiring. But a section of the Republican Party and a section of the country despised him from the get-go, and I genuinely can't understand it except the racist attitudes towards him were deep. And 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 someone like Trump who emerged because of the Bertha thing, I, I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't believe America is a racist society, but I can't explain that hostility. And I also can't quite explain the emergence of Trump without accepting that there is an element in this culture that is still horribly racist towards uh, African Americans. Okay, I, but, but something you might do as an antidote to that you know, these county maps that come out of every election with the red and the blue and dark red means higher Republican, dark blue means, okay. Uh, now in 2016, 2020, those maps are just utterly stark, as you've probably seen. But you go back to 1996, and it wasn't there at all, but it was there by 2000. It was uh, it was start. It wasn't nearly as pronounced in 2000 as it was in 2016, but already there were signs of a migration. And let me point number one: you may well be right about a racist backlash uh, of some unknown proportion with Obama. In fact, I'm sure you are if we say unknown proportion. But something else was going on at the same time, and that is that outside. Uh, the the megalopolises and the cultural centers, you had a lot of white Americans who in 2000 were already feeling like we've been told you have to wait in line. You have to get to the back of the line, not the front of the line, whether it's whether your kids get into school, uh, into an elite school, whether you get a promotion from patrolman to sergeant in the police department, go down the whole list of things where you had, I think, white America very disillusioned and in many ways demoralized. And you can say, well, that's because they lost their white privilege. I would say, well, it's actually because they saw that, that we were doing group politics and, uh, and the, the powers that be have decided that we're going to favor other people. But whatever, whatever spin you put on that, there was a lot of that disaffection before Obama. Mm-hmm. And... I will simply say my own my own reading 
and I do not say as a student of Obama's politics, what drove me absolutely crazy was the disconnect between his rhetoric and the way he governed. Uh, so that when he ran in 2008, I was really optimistic. And it turned out that he was really irritating in the consistency with which he said, well, the Republicans believe that or, or, or setting up a straw man position that nobody holds and then demolishing that as saying that that's a response to the people who don't agree with me. So I think as, as a person independent of the politics, I don't think he wore very well. Um, well, it's, it's, it's I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there because I don't okay. want to. We could, we could argue about yeah, him yeah. for a long time. I, I remain an admirer. Um, but let me – one of the things I thought was interesting in human diversity, when you get to the racial question and whether there are um, differences in what we might call – when I say the well, race Now we're question, talking genetic differences. Yes. Yeah. Talking about genetic differences. Now these are uh, these are obviously subtle differences, massive, more overlap than any differences. That's the first thing you have to say. So, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, how can that not be understood? Uh, in the sense that, for example, that African Americans will the mean will be lower by a standard deviation. In fact. Than, 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 than white Americans, let alone Asian Americans who are score even higher than that. How can that be discussed publicly or even examined publicly without invoking the awful stigma of African Americans are dumb? This, this awful, horrible, ugly trope in American society and in world society that, that still endures that African Americans have to cope with constantly, unfairly as individuals, um, and merely raising this question is is tantamount to assaulting the the sense of self worth of of a large group of Americans, and 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 therefore should be avoided at almost any cost. I agree with virtually everything you've just said, including should be avoided at, I would say, any but a compelling. And the problem is that we face right now is that we have a dominant political movement in this country that says all of the inequities, whether they involve policing or whether they involve uh, you know, vice presidents of Microsoft or whatever, all of these inequities are evidence of systemic racism. And nothing else. Yeah, that's – and nothing else. Well, that's the important thing uh, yeah, because you could say – I would say there may well be some truth to that. I'm, in some respects, I think you can – but the question is to what degree and extent is that true uh -huh. and how complicated is the actual picture here? How do, we, how do we factor in, for example, very early childhood development, which seems to be an incredibly important part of the development? How do we uh, – of, 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 the, of the brain, how do we factor in the effects of long-term poverty? How do we, how do we uh, counter the effects of cultural attitudes which sort of tell – 
uh, black kids that they really can't succeed and therefore they lose confidence in, in that. How do we cope with the consequences of family breakdown so that disproportionately black kids compared, say, with Asian kids have far worse uh, beginnings in life uh, and the ability to have a stable home? These are all things we could tackle first, right? Well, and we could we could lower this difference. I think what people are worried about, that by emphasizing the differences, you kind of create a fatalism about this that can entrench uh, a, a, a disparagement of, of this particular, the, the difficulty yeah. of this problem. Well, you're asking, there are two different issues that we can explore. And one is, what causes something like a difference in mean scores in a standardized IQ test? And, and the candidates that you just listed are all important candidates. And then, then there's been a huge amount of work done on all of that. So you've got the literature on the effects of preschool education. You have a literature on the effects of prenatal nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all good and that's useful. But if you're saying, why, are, why do we have so few vice presidents at Microsoft who are black? Or no one the fact that we have so few black Microsoft vice presidents means that we are a systemically racist country. Well, at that point, a whole bunch of people in the center have painted themselves into a corner because they cannot bring themselves to say, well, one of the reasons that is that whatever the causes may be, the number of people who can compete in the market for senior vice presidents at Microsoft are overwhelmingly white and Asian as of this moment in time. And so if you're asking about the reasons for the existing situation now, it's a difference in, the, in, a, in a characteristic that has certain predictive validity for the likelihood you can become a senior vice president at Microsoft. And there aren't enough black people who fall, fall into that pool to go around with the very huge demand there is for them. If you aren't willing to talk about differences in groups, then you leave open to the systemic racist proponents, what else can it be except racism? Well, there are things it could be uh, that are not nearly as damning so the short answer to your question of why talk about this unless there's a compelling reason to is we now have a compelling reason we have to do it. This was, this was really my response actually to asking about this question with respect to affirmative action. Is that if you have advancing a policy whose premise is the complete indistinguishability between groups of human beings with respect to for example, G, natural intelligence, or that kind of general intelligence, um, uh, then it's obvious that, uh, that this must be a function of, of, of some kind of oppression or some kind of generalized hostility or the cumulative effects of historical practices like redlining, for example, or the fact that black Americans have had much less opportunity to build wealth than, than your average white Americans because, I mean, you can directly ascribe that to certain policies that existed. So, so you're back to causes again. Yeah. And I'm saying fine. Yeah. Let's say that that could, could, could explain 100% of it. I don't think it does, but suppose it could. What difference would that make to who ought to get hired for jobs right now? Mm -hmm. And so then you get to affirmative action. And here is where 
I've had a very strong position now for 30, 40 years, and I've seen no reason to modify it. If affirmative action is a poison leaking into the, to the American system, and and the reason it's a poison is that once you have affirmative action, two things happen. One is that every single black kid who gets into Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, and so forth, and every single black person who is hired for uh, a law firm or this, that, or the other thing comes under the suspicion of being an affirmative action admission or an affirmative action hire. It is a blanket thing. And one of the, I think that our black listeners may not be aware of the extent to which in private, whites are absolutely ecstatic when the new coworker, black coworker has been hired, turns out not to have been an affirmative action hire, but a really capable person. And Whites are even afraid to talk about this to each other, but you can sort of hear it in the code words that Joe has really turned out great, hasn't he? And the unspoken subtext to that is we were all worried Joe was an affirmative action hire. Okay, So that's one aspect of it which if I were black, uh, I would hate um, the idea that, that I got into Harvard and I only got in there because I was black would drive me nuts if I should, if I could have gotten into Harvard anyway. So okay. why isn't it driving people nuts? Because it seems to be that plenty of um, people who've black African Americans who very much succeeded in this system uh, feel none of this at all. At well, least they don't seem to. In fact, they're increasingly enraged when they get into institutions even as as liberal as like the New York Times newsroom or the Washington Post newsroom that they are being devalued, marginalized, loathed, hated, oppressed there too. And there is no end to the oppression that even incredibly successful, uh, prominent Washington uh, uh, socialites and power power brokers have. Uh, Yeah, well, you've got two things going on. One is that a lot of those who rise to those positions are, in fact, belong there uh, on the merits. Uh, the, the other thing is that it's self-selection insofar as the dropout rates of blacks who get into elite colleges, which are much higher than the dropout rates for whites and Asians. And by the way, elite schools try really hard to keep their kids. Once they let you in, they refuse to admit they made a mistake. So those dropouts are sort of a silent testimony because these kids who drop out are not dumb kids. Uh, but they are in a classroom in which they are a standard deviation below the super smart kids who make the, up the rest of the classroom. And that's a very demoralizing experience. And there's no, there's no necessity for it. Um, you know, the kid could be an engineer in a fine engineering school like Purdue or Iowa State and do very well. It's uh, filled with other smart kids it's not the same pool as in an engineering class at MIT. Okay, so you've got a lot of dropouts who are sort of silent testimony saying, yeah, it is kind of demoralizing. But here's the other point I simply want to make. And here is where I wish we could administer sodium pentothal to every white person in the United States so we could get accurate numbers on this. The existence of affirmative action perpetuates condescension, racial condescension. Uh, sometimes it's open and it's, it's racism in the old-fashioned sense of that term. The condescension I see in white elites 
is palpable. Well, no, that it's not palpable. It's subtle, but it, but it's but it's definitely there. And it, and then there's the other thing which nobody wants to talk about, which is that if you have 13 percent of the population, and that's the proportion of blacks in the American population, who are accusing 60 percent of the population, and that's non-Latino whites, of being evil, of being racist of being the cause of blacks' problems, and you better get your act together or else, you're going to have two reactions. One is among the white elites, because their white guilt is a real thing, and they will, they will uh, promise to do better. They will mea culpa. They're acknowledging their sins. They hadn't realized they were racist, but their consciousness has been raised. Meanwhile, there is this very silent other group of non-Latino whites out there who are not being insulted into agreeing with them. They don't think they're racist. Uh, they don't think they've acted as racists. They think they've been respectful and friendly to their black uh, colleagues at work and have been good neighbors to any blacks who live in their neighborhood. And they, just, and they also don't see that they've been privileged in any one damn thing that they are working hard and trying to keep make ends meet, and they probably live in a town that has a very small proportion of minorities to begin with, and so they certainly aren't getting much privilege in that sense. And they're mad. And I just put it to you as a question, Andrew. What happens if that 60% of whites or some large proportion of them say, hey, if identity politics works for blacks, why can't it work for us? And they're in lies catastrophe. If and that, that is that, where we're headed. I that's mean, where it, we're, it, that's it also where seems as if the parties are sorting racially, which is which is also really disturbing. Although there's some indication between 2016 and 2020 that a little bit of that was undone actually under Trump, that mm -hmm. there was a slight drift of minorities mm -hmm. towards uh, Trump and the right more generally, maybe because of immigration, uh, maybe because of crime, maybe because of the things that that are that are really there um uh and but then you have the situation where these talented schools these gifted schools like in new york city uh turn out to be able to get because they it's all on the test it's a extremely meritocratic system and asian students are just kicking ass and the majority including of like, poor asian students from poor families poor poor families some of them first generation not speaking English to the home to start with, but are making incredible strides, and partly because also they have these incredibly devoted families that they also were self-selected as immigrants to some extent to be more entrepreneurial, more aggressive, and maybe self-selected also because the people that tend to be able to immigrate to the United States tend to be smarter than the population they generally come from. Uh, well, I'm, I'm presenting these arguments because <laughs> no, they're, they're, no. they're real, but they're, they're nonetheless, real. They're real. and they, they carry some salience. Um, my my question is if therefore that one should look and say well, what's going wrong? Uh, what is going on with the the up the upbringing of black kids? What is happening in the home structure? What is happening in early development? What is happening when you live in a in an environment which is riddled with crime and insecurity? What happens when you never when you see your dad every other couple of weeks or or in, or your dad has plenty of other kids somewhere else that you? I mean these are these are things you could tackle. Now, they're very difficult to tackle. How do you really have, but it's much easier to say, 
well, let's just fix the percentages and just uh, and just make sure this is equitable, and that obviously anything that doesn't do that is itself racist. Now, let's also say this about the current arguments: that it's moved a little bit. It's not really saying that everyone is racist as such. I mean, they've now redefined the word racist to mean that, no, the systems that you've unwittingly created are themselves perpetuating racism. And insofar as you are complicit in that, in sustaining those institutions and that kind of society, you are complicit in racism. Now, let's say, for example, that a society isn't governed by and isn't motivated by G. Let's say, let's say that's not really how you should judge a society. And I think you and I would agree with that, right? Yeah. Isn't there some logic to say, well, then why do we have to have the same standards for everyone? Why shouldn't one group uh, be given more slack than the other? Um, uh, a sort of kind of bell curve leftism kind of thing. Okay, so but here's what happens. It's the old story that the elites are in favor of policies that they themselves can avoid. It is an empirical statement of fact that the mean IQ of K-12 teachers who are white is on the order of 14, 15 points higher than the mean IQ of K-12 teachers who are black. Is IQ the only important thing that goes into being a teacher? Obviously not. All sorts of other things are important too. Is it true that if you take a large group of teachers and one of them is uh, 15 points lower on average than the other, is there going to be a difference in the quality of teachers? Yeah. Are there going to be a larger number of incompetent teachers who are black? Yeah, that's also true. It's inescapable in large samples. Guess who won't be sending their kids to those schools? People with money to send their kids to other schools. And the same thing goes with... Uh, affirmative action in, well, let's say government hiring, because the most sweeping aggressive affirmative action is in government at all levels, with city government being one of the most. Okay, so who does that affect? Well, it affects who is accepted for police and firefighting training and who gets promoted, and those are things that are important to everybody. Uh, and it affects uh, the quality of the prosecutors, uh, and public defenders, that public defenders don't affect the affluent so much, but, but you know they probably want good prosecutors. You know what it really affects is the quality of the people in the public in the social services departments. And so, if you have really aggressive affirmative action, uh, you have a a much less efficient level of government services than you would have without it. And who is it that? has to make the most use of navigating social service departments, it's the poor who are disproportionately minorities. You very seldom hear anybody point out that aggressive affirmative action probably has important deleterious effects on the services that black people receive. But it's it's probably true. Now, in all of this, I, I hear my voice sounding clinical about here's what the test scores say and this, that, and the other thing. And listeners out there saying, well, what an asshole this guy is in, in the, being so dry and cool and unemotional about it. Well, it's about time that we tried to separate out the emotional aspect of this 
from the need to confront a lot of these things as factually, as empirically as possible. When you said a few minutes ago to, to, to talk about this, and you used very eloquent language, you know, it's in effect you were saying how deeply wounding this is to all sorts of people who don't deserve to be wounded. You were absolutely right, okay? It's, it's one of, it, it is perhaps the most difficult thing to talk about of any of the topics. We are at a moment in our history where we must do it. But there's one thing that I, that I can at least add to that, that the high IQ people out there have got to come to grips with. It is a completely unearned gift. Uh, we don't have to argue about the role of environment and genes and IQ, whatever it is. You were born in circumstances, whether a combination of genes and environment or what, whereby you end up with a 145 IQ or whatever it may be. That's not merit. You have nothing to do with it. You should be on your knees every night giving thanks that you are so lucky and, 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 and what your role in life is to be worthy of that luck. So why not affirmative action? <laughs> because uh, you, the, the smart didn't really deserve it, so why should they get it? Well, uh, I mean, I, that's Freddie DeBoer's sort I, of argument in a way. Uh, if, if I'm going to go in for uh, cardiac surgery, right. I want somebody who was selected for medical school right. with the ability to be a really good cardiac surgeon. And whatever that skill set may be, I am perfectly neutral as to the skin color of the person who does my cardiac surgery as long as that skill set is as high as I can possibly find. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you have affirmative action, here's another brutal truth. If I don't have a chance to, to get to interview and otherwise examine the black cardiac surgeon versus the white cardiac surgeon versus the uh, Asian cardiac surgeon, if the only information I have to go on, I'm taking the Asian every time. Not because I think the odds are that much better that the Asian, uh, that, that high that the Asian is a better cardiac surgeon than the others. But if that's all I've got to go on, that is, that's a relevant factor. So the, so the IQ data was important to get rid of that, that potential bias in assumptions. Is that, that's what you're saying? Yeah. Suppose, suppose, valid. suppose, uh, suppose that I will use the word colorblind. Caltech chooses its student body pretty much exclusively on the basis of test scores. They have a really smart student body that now is about seventy percent Asian. Okay. Uh, I don't think you have to go that far, but suppose that, in effect, Yale selected out of its forty thousand applicants. It selects the 4,000 who are so good that they can't really make any finer discrimination that they're all really smart, they're all really got good extracurricular activities. They, they have a lottery among that 4,000 as to who gets the 2,000 slots. In that case, there would be no reason to think that a black face in the Yale undergraduate student body was any different from anybody else. It's going to be the same distribution. And in that case, the, and I suppose the same is true of the Yale Medical School for cardiac surgeons. In that case, I no longer 
can make any assumptions about black, white, and Asian surgeons as to who's going to be the best. And that's that would be so much better than the situation we've got now. You you would okay, one more personal anecdote. I went to Harvard in the fall of 1961. There weren't very many blacks in the freshman class, but my automatic assumption was that any black I met was probably smarter than I was, and the reason was I was very confident that we'd all been admitted on the base the same standards. In those days, by the way, you could not put a picture in with your application, nor uh, were you supposed to make any reference to your ethnic background. But anyway, that was my underlying assumption, and by the way, uh, it was pretty much true for the blacks in the undergraduate school that I knew and met. They were... So let, me, let, me, let me put this around another way and become a sort of um, a temporary uh, social constructionist. Um, let's say that the G or the IQ really does select for people. Uh, we're, we're not talking about marriage or anything or, or moral worth. We're just talking about what, who will do best in the kind of capitalist free market economy that the European... American world has kind of generated. Right. Uh, well, maybe that's not the world we should live in. If, if that kind of world gives us this level of racial inequality, then maybe we need to dismantle capitalism. Maybe we need to alter the system so that those who are have different skills are given more privileges than those with traditionally market rewarded skills, right? So that in fact, when they say that white supremacy, that, that, that however hyper, hyperbolic that term is, is related to things like the SAT scores or the obsession with, let's say, perfectionism or getting things done on time or these other things, I find kind of racist to ascribe that to a skin color because I think these are universal norms. And certainly if you went to China and said, being perfectionist, getting good results, uh, being on time, all the other things that are white supremacy culture, they would regard that as, well, that's Han supremacy culture. Right? That's Chinese supremacy culture. But let's play that game. Why why would we not alter it so that uh, rewards go uh, evenly to to ethnic groups or to different groups just according to their their status in the population? I mean, that's the, that's the candy thing, isn't it? Forget any ability to do anything. Just fix it so that the proportions are identical to that in the population. And if you're not doing it, something in the system, and even if that system is merit, say, uh -huh. that has to be rejected because, in fact, it's simply a disguise okay. for white people running the world. Okay, so let's say that we have had the cleverest of all possible planners and so forth who have come up with a way to do this, and it, has been, it is going to be implemented. And uh, it is going to be implemented starting tomorrow. What else is going to happen tomorrow? You are going to have a whole lot of people who will move. They'll leave. And the reason they'll leave, well, there'll be a combination of reasons. But it goes back to Robert Nozick's uh, wonderful book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, where he defines utopia as... He, he tries to – he gives everybody the imagining rights for utopia. They can imagine any world they want to. The only catch is that everybody else in their world has the equal rights 
to imagine a world that's uh, utopia for them. And what he, he finally has a recursive logic which says, what's the best world you can imagine for yourself, which other people would also be willing to live in? It is a world in which people receive the value added that they bring to the society because if it's any less than that, they will move out to, to another alternative. And I've since been less enthusiastic about Nozick's Utopia than I was when I first read it, but it remains true. Um, if, if, if I'm asked to live in a world where I get mediocre cardiac surgeons and I don't have any choice about choosing the, the good one, I've got to take the luck of the draw. I don't want to live in that world. Uh, I don't want to live in a world in which comedians are uh, uh, chosen on the... No, I'll give you better. I don't want to live in a world in which professional basketball has 50% whites. You know, it'd be boring. Uh, I, I want to live in a world where excellence uh, is rewarded. Uh, so that's a very deep human characteristic, I think. And the, the getting rid of the capitalist system and substituting the one where we ignore this stuff has, as a flaw, it is in fundamental contradiction to all sorts of deep aspects of human nature. Yes, except that we have kind of realized a lot of this in the West. Wow. And people are miserable, as we just talked about. Even the people, are, and insofar as this has generated technology that is rendering our lives meaningless. I mean, there, I mean I'm now going to a rather yeah. meta critique of all of this, yeah. which is a sort of deep, profound conservatism, which is that we've been running in circles now for our entire uh, existence as a species, and we were probably smarter to have left it back in the 15th century when we just didn't really strive for excellence, strove for truth. We didn't reward market contributions. We rewarded people based upon their roles in society, that we gave people meaning. The capitalism has kind of distorted and churned all this up and is the, I mean, this is a sort of paleo-conservative view, which I have to say, when I when I had a really good joint and <laughs> had a couple of glasses of wine and with a car, I think, well, you know, yeah, kind of true, isn't it, really, that we've, we've created a dystopia in attempting to create this utopia. Um, well, we have market capitalism is not a utopia. Michael Young was one of the most Brilliant. eerily, yes. preternaturally, prescient persons. I'm referring to his uh, The Rise of the Meritocracy, which, as you know, but maybe a lot of people listening to us have not read that. And he's writing in the 1950s. I know. And he's in the voice of a historian in 19, 2033 who's looking back on the subsequent rise of the meritocracy in Britain, and the class divisions are way harsher than they were then. And, and it, also much less easy to explain away. Well, that's, they have that's, more legitimacy. That's, the, that's the, the link. And here is it's, this echoes a lot of what you were saying, and there is a fundamental truth about it. In 1950s England, you've given anecdotes that support this, yeah, you had a privileged class, and and most of them were smart enough to realize it was an accident of birth that they were there, and their great jobs, and their the rest of it. And as Young says, you know, at some point in their lives, they have had to recognize there are other people, the common workman and the servants and so forth, who are as smart or smarter than they are and so forth. And meanwhile, the common workman can say, yeah, I'm a common workman, but I never had the alternative to be anything else. And uh, so it's not my fault. 
And the, the great problem of the meritocracy that Michael Young just honed in on is a true meritocracy gives those people who are not successes in life no excuse anymore. And it also gives, and this was even better, he was brilliant, uh, he also foresaw the ways in which the people who are on top become more convinced of their own superiority than an English aristocrat was. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and, uh, and and look down on, on ordinary people much more harshly than the aristocrats did. Yes, in fact, the aristocrats had a kind of uh, weird symbiosis with the working classes in some in some respects. In that so, old Tory coalition between the gilded aristocracy and the patriotic royalist working classes, that that there was a kind of it was a system, however unjust, that made sense. However, what happened in the fifties in Britain was what happened to me, which was that they created. A meritocracy. They created grammar schools and these local schools that sifted through the population, found people like me, pushed us through Oxford, Harvard, all the rest of it. We were going to be the ruling class, and now, lo and behold, we are. Um, I was a kid. More... For, I was a kid from Newton, Iowa. Father was a high school graduate. Uh, I go off to Harvard. Uh, yeah, it's you have to hold two things in your head at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can have a system that does really great stuff and really creates great problems. And, and the solution has to be, I think, some sort of great awakening among the elites about the extent of their own good fortune, about the disconnect between human worth and their good fortune in having a high IQ, and to the extent that people become genuinely aware of that and believe it, they also have a lot of incentives to just become more deeply engaged with other kinds of people than they had before. Now, I'm starting to sound like the, the idealist here. Well, not really. But, it's, because, but, that's, but that's what I believe. But that is what, for example, Christianity would teach you. Ah, now, yes, exactly. That, 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 that my concern is that you remove Christianity. You remove what was at some level a foundational civilizational compact in the modern European American state that balances the cruelty of meritocracy with the truth, the transcendent truth of equal human worth. Yep. And that's and Christianity is not intuitive. It is deeply counterintuitive, which is why it's such a was was Jesus was a genius in so many ways. But it strikes me that if you do not have that leavening spirituality, that leavening sense of equality uh, and the sense of the actual just arbitrariness of some of your capacities as opposed to you earning them. And equal, equal access to grace. And forgiveness. And forgiveness, yeah. Uh, and also this goes both ways. I remember my own uh, hostility towards those old Etonians who showed up at Oxford who came from these very plush backgrounds, including my friend Boris Johnson, et cetera, and finding them contemptible in so many ways. And, and I made some remark once about these old Italians, and one of them, a friend of mine who was an old Italian, said, you know, you know we're humans too. Uh, I didn't choose to be born where I was born or educated where I was educated. I'm just like you, really. And, and that was also an important moment in my life to realize don't just look down on people who are below you. Don't look down <laughs> on people above you either. That, 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 and have a constant sense 
of your own frailty and your own yes. fallibility. And I, you know, for all the for all the mental tortures that Catholicism has placed upon me, uh, I am so grateful that that truth was dinned into me from the earliest age. You are no better and no worse than anyone else. Even the queen goes to the toilet, my mother would tell me. Um, there's no need to have fake, fake deference to people. And false modesty is bad, but arrogance and, and self-entitlement and uh, a, a sense that your qualities are the greatest universal qualities, uh, sort of projection as it were, and that the only way to judge people is by the way in which you have judged yourself in your life this is always. This also strikes me that it's the intelligent people that are most hostile to intelligence testing, mm -hmm. uh, because they themselves have internalized that this is a function of moral worth, and therefore people who don't score as highly are not as moral as they are. I think that you're is, right. That is just so hard to get out of people's heads, and I also don't understand how. And part of my deep anxiety about our current other West is that without this faith, without this, in some ways completely irrational belief in the profound equality of the human person, whether they are disabled, whether they are brilliant, whether they are beautiful, whether they are ugly, uh, whether they are old or young, that that is what we're trying to replicate in a way by, these, by fixing the system rather than changing the human heart, which is the only way that this will only be overcome. In other words, that inequality will always be with us and it will also have some distributions that will make it seem unjust, particularly unjust and unfair and cruel. Yeah. The response to which is not to deny reality, but it is to make a leap of the imagination and the moral imagination to see the beauty and dignity and worth of people from different ways of life, different skills, different capacities. I mean, one of the reasons, one thing I got from Oakshot, for example, uh, the, the man who most influenced me intellectually, was a profound respect for the ways of life that emerged from non-rational uh, activities, um, whether that be the local librarian who just does her job very well, whether it be the brilliant kindergartner teacher, whether it be the gardener, whether it be these things that have enduring profound value outside of our economic value system without outside of our intellectual structure. I just wonder if you've taken Christianity out of a society. I don't think it works. How would you inject this back in? Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've undergone uh, evolution over the last 20 years. When I was doing a book called Human Accomplishment, I first became actively aware of the role of Christianity in, in Western civilization, of the positive role of Christianity in Western civilization. And over the subsequent, and I and I've thought that as a purely intellectual conclusion. I was uh, thoroughly agnostic. And over the last twenty years, uh, I've become increasingly shaky in my unbelief. And uh, I think it's fair to call me a Christian now. And, and really, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, it is. And among other things, it is the things you just pointed out that are so essential, I think, to uh, a good society is that sense of frailty and your, your own sins 
and the, the equality, the idea that God thinks more highly than me of the guy next to me because I have 10 points higher than IQ, no God worthy of the name would find that anything but laughable. Um, here's, here's the great unknown. Is it possible for a secular society over a long period of time to remain a good society? And I am increasingly of the opinion that it cannot. I think secular humanism, I admire their attempts. Uh, I don't think in the long run they wash. If there is a, not a transcendent belief in, in the kinds of things you just talked about, there's no transcendent reason for believing that, then it just doesn't it just doesn't have the legs, doesn't have the stuffing to last. Here is where, Andrew, I think we have to fall back on to, to be hopeful. <laughs> we have to fall back on the presumption that we're right because I think you and I have very similar views about the importance of the family, not just in, in an expedient sense but as a source of human satisfaction, whether it's a family like I have or a family like you have. Uh, and and we both have a a, a deep uh, in case we we both have a, a sense of the transcendent. And if these are actually good things to have because they're true, sooner or later the family is going to make a comeback, just because humans are seeking ways to live satisfying lives. And sooner or later religion is going to make a comeback. With I think Christianity being the most impressive uh, of, the, of the expressions of, of the transcendent because human beings cannot live in a world without transcendence. They, they don't thrive. They don't flourish. In but a world the, the worry it. is that they will find other forms of transcendence that, that mimic religion, whether that be cultish, uh, social justice, uh, Environment, Environmentalism. Environmentalism, perhaps, although environmentalism is completely compatible with Christianity, as oh, much yeah, as it yeah. also ascribes a worth to the natural world that is independent of any value that humans can place on it. Yeah, which I think is why, in is, fact, it is, and we may disagree with it, but why I think it's actually integral. To, environmentalism is integral to Christianity. I'm with the, I'm with the Pope on this one. Um, uh, but not the other way around. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the I do not get a sense that. Uh, the people who use environmentalism as a substitute for religion right. uh, are on the right track at all. And in fact, I think their attitude toward people who are not as pure as they is ultimately condescending and contemptuous and hateful. Uh, they do not consider those who do not believe as those deserving of God's grace. <laughs> One of the things I find fascinating about that and about the future of religion is the the impact of psychedelics on human society, which I think is beginning to be felt again. In other words, uh, that we're finding that many of the psychological ordeal of the modernity that imposes upon us and the misery and the depression, the rates of recidivism, of addiction, of these ways, these coping mechanisms are being shown in now in medical trials to be lifted by these experiences of transcendence which are chemically infused. Uh, in other words, a sort of, uh, you, I mean, you could call it a phony spirituality, although I don't, I think it's more complicated than that. But I do think <clears throat> that one way in which the next generation will understand the transcendent a little better will be through their exposure to psychedelic experiences, which mimic temporarily 
in some ways, the extraordinary peace and composure of people who've devoted their lives, for example, to meditation. Um, you see that also. You see meditation emerging as a big thing. You see yoga emerging as a, as a big thing. You see, uh, you know, naturism emerging as a big thing. But you also find this this strange utopianism in social justice theory. And you also, to be honest, see rather ugly and dangerous cultic uh, cult hero worships in something like the Trump fixation uh, mm -hmm. in which or or which the worship of celebrities who these 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 figures in social media who become these godlike figures these influencers um there are saints of the day in other words i think you see it all happen but it can happen in in ugly fake and damaging ways and also i look at i look at the society without those kind of values and i see china now there, we're going to have a we're going to have a real experiment in how, when you unleash science, the mind, and you have no moral constraints upon it uh, at all, uh, you could have extraordinarily powerful society emerging, uh, which which has uh, I mean you could say it has a sort of Confucianist uh, culture or some kind of, but it's definitely not compatible with with Christianity as they fully understand. Um, or you see the technocratic West without religion in which, in which brutal uh, inequalities in the economic and social sphere become signifiers of your moral worth in a way that makes, makes so many people bloody miserable. I'm um, afraid that the elites in the United States will continue to pay off their consciousness by marching in the appropriate parades and... Uh, will continue on their merry way in structuring their own personal lives exactly as well, they see fit. When you defund the police, if you're an elite in, uh, in a gated elitist, community, who you're cares? Fine. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 the 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 defund the police movement that has led to God knows how many um, young, innocent black kids, women, men being gunned down really in the streets in a way that the police do not do by an order about 5,000 times <laughs> as many. And, and I, so I feel the same way, that it's, it's, it's too cheap, it's too easy, and it's, it's too much about them as opposed to the people who are really struggling with. That is not to deny, that is not to deny the injustices that exist and need to be no. confronted. I mean, I think you and I are quite, quite yeah. passionate about controlling the police and... And, and civil liberties and the ability for us not to be overly policed or badly policed, let alone harassed by your own police forces. So that's, you know, that's a given. But the notion that you should leap from that. So the New Yorker is running an endless essay about getting rid of policing altogether and why this is a practical, while crime is going through the roof in New York City and why all the major mayoral candidates are, the smart ones, are rightly focusing on the need to cut crime because crime is by far the hardest challenge that most minorities have to grapple with. And I think it may be a reason why we saw some minority movement towards the right in yeah. the last election because they are on the – they are the ones who suffer from mass illegal immigration. They are the ones who suffer from increasing proportions of violent crime. They are the people who actually deal with the consequences of white liberal utopianism. Yep. And uh – who knows? Maybe, maybe the two thousand twenties will be to the two thousand tens what the nineteen seventies were to the nineteen sixties. Not that the nineteen seventies were that great, 
They but, got banned. Uh, but, uh, but, but by the but, end of it, we'd begun yeah. to figure a way out of it. And with crime, that was one of the – that's the canary in the coal mine because uh, uh, you still had the elites in the first half of the United, 1970s who were saying, oh, this apparent increase in crime is a statistical artifact. People are just reporting it more, whereas – Everybody on the streets knew exactly what was going on, and that's when you started the rising incarceration rates. Yeah. Um, well, we have covered <coughs> a huge a amount huge of ground. I know, and I, 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 we have been talking for a long time. I will, I will. I want to. I wanted to ask you. you know, you're 78, for God's sake. Um, I'm exhausted, and I'm 57. <laughs> um, and you produced this book, uh, Human Diversity, which again was largely ignored by most of the media, but which I, I, I do urge people to read, even though it's a really hard book because it's quite technical and difficult. I do think you're, you are, do have a real skill at being able to, even though I couldn't get through parts of this book because I, I just I, my, my eyes began swimming with the various terms and let alone some of the appendices where I, I completely began <laughs> to just... Uh, uh, maybe it was trying to read it over brunch uh, as I did for several days in a row that just suffered. But 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 how how are you, how are you still doing this? I mean, I'm kind of exhausted, and I'm 20 years younger than you. Uh, it's uh, first place. It was hard because my memory's bad. What are your tips? How you endure this? I mean. How do you, especially now with social media, the 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 way in which public obloquy can be magnified and can be targeted uh, in this this new invention of the mob, really. Um, and you know, to some extent, you and I have been through the wars and we've survived. There's nothing, as Churchill once put it, more exhilarating than being shot at and not being killed. <laughs> um, but for my worry is about younger people, people who are coming up trying to think about the world they're in their universities or they might think about going into the journalism or academia or some some kind of and the pressure on them to not question anything is beyond intense because the the price is social obloquy and ostracism how what do you what do we say to them how do we tell them that not to give up well the sad truth is that one of the reasons I can write what I write is that I'm old and my career is largely behind me, almost entirely behind me, and what can they do to me? And the answer is not very much, and they can't ruin my career. If I am a person in his 20s or 30s, if I'm an assistant professor without tenure, I can't take those chances. I, I, it's literally will ruin my career if I take on certain topics. I guess I would say if to those in academia, once you get tenure, with that tenure, you must suck it up. Uh, you must go ahead and do the work that you think is appropriate and tell the truth about what you, what you have found because that is what tenure is supposed to be for. If you're a public intellectual, there are a few refuges left. I work at one of them, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, where, you know, the bell curve is not something that made AEI's donors happy. <laughs> they weren't they weren't crazy about this. This was way off in left field. Uh, I have in many ways been the opposite of the apparatchik in a think tank who churns out what people who give money to the place who want to hear. 
And there are a few institutions like that. I know AEI is like that. I hope Brookings is still like that and so forth. There are niches that you can find. But at the end of all of that, you still have to be willing to have people call you names and unjust names and things you don't deserve and things you will not be able to fight back on because it doesn't make any difference what you say. It doesn't make any difference how good your explanation is. There are people who are just going to say awful things about you. And you know what? It's not that bad unless you depend on people's adulation of you for your for your kicks in life. But if you have a loving spouse and, and community and friends and so forth, I did not lose friends over the bell curve. You did. Uh, you, you, well, actually, that, you, you probably paid a higher price than I did. For just airing a symposium about it, you'd think I would have written and published <laughs> the thing myself after all these years. But no, I just was interested in the subject uh, and wanted to wanted to talk about it. That was my my crime. But but even in my case, Charles, I didn't actually lose any real friends. Good, because they know me, and they know I can go out on a limb sometimes, um, as my forthcoming book is titled "Out on a Limb." Uh, but uh, they 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 know me well enough, and I think if you have that kind of friends, again, I'm grateful for being gay because I. It helped me get a network of friends that really were independent of my work, and that was crucial. Not that they didn't know my work, but they weren't part of the peer process. And secondly, I would say, you know, the truth is that these subjects are fascinating. Yes. That's what people should understand. <laughs> that They're is just what fascinating. I'm intrigued by. Why is this group different than that one? What's, what could what that meaning of that be? The world is an absolutely fascinating and paradoxical place. And the, the, the role of biology and evolution as well as culture and society, all of which are important, why would you remove some elements of that complexity at the price of being more boring? And the truth is that when you actually show and reveal that you're interested in these subjects, even though publicly you'll be lambasted or in my case fired um, or publicly ridiculed, it's a strange thing. You, you you start writing about these things and talking about having this kind of conversation and people will actually want to read and listen. And the big surprise uh, for me of this being fired and coming up with this new this new uh, med means of becoming media, Substack, et cetera, is how bloody successful it's been. I mean, I really am taken aback by it. I did not expect it quite like it. It's been a huge boom to ones because remember – the people who are yelling at you in a year are not the people, are not a lot of people. And many of them are just jealous or angry or have all sorts of issues. And some of them are just miserable fuckers. And they just, <laughs> this is how they get through the day, which is fair enough, I guess. Um, but no, I think the other thing is don't do boring shit. And you'd be amazed how, how attractive that is to people. And also be honest and real. And when you fuck up, admit it, talk about it. See where you change your mind. Be open about this process, and you can help others be part of that process. And I, I at that level, even though I'm weary and battle-scarred like you, and on questions like this, the impulse to just never talk about it ever again is real. But screw it. Uh, that is 
I think basically that is the motto we must take. Put put in our banner as we get on our spavined horse and lift our rusty lance to the sky. Screw it. Uh, well, on that note, Charles, I want to thank you for the work you have done. It's been it's been fascinating. Let me put it. It's been fascinating. Yeah. I don't know whether I agree with all of it, but such. But I find it riveting and interesting stuff because it opens questions rather than closing them. And uh, and I also thank you for your friendship over the years and our strange connection from all those years ago. Um, but. From my point of view, I don't mind publicly saying this. I I revere you as a public intellectual. You are in part a model for me. And thank you for that. Th- thank you for that, Andrew. That, that means a lot to me. On that note, we'll see you next week, guys. Thanks so much, Charles, for coming. <laughs>